0: Are in the middle of a series called the Waiting Game. Um, does anybody feel like this has been going on forever? Forever. Um, it's it's a it's a series that we talked about. We started in the garden with whom? Eve. Not a trick question. Yeah, Eve and Adam. Remember? And what happened in that? What happened in the garden that we've been waiting for to happen? What happened? What was said in the garden that we've been waiting for to happen? i to stomp the serpent. God made a promise that I'm going to take care of you. All this, all this wickedness and all the things that, that you have caused, I'm going to take care of. And we talked about Eve waited her whole life and did never see it happen. She caught glimpses that maybe it was coming, but she never saw it happen. And then we talked about generations and generations um, after Eve how uh, God broke in and he started talking to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to do something special with you. And who remembers how old Abraham was when God shows up in his life and says, hey, we're going to do something together? 75. That's it. 75 years old. So his retirement started a little bit late. He was 75 years old, and God says, hey, I'm going to do something very special with you. I know that you're established. I know you've got an income bracket that you're comfortable with, but what I want you to do is leave everything behind and move to a place, and I'll let you know when you get there. And Abe says, all right, I I don't know who you are, but sure. Like, if this is is what you want from me, God, uh, Yahweh, deity that I've never known before, like, yeah, I'll follow you. And God does it. And Abraham's so excited that he's got these promises that he tries to help God fulfill his promises. And the more he tries to help, the more God says, I just told you to wait. I said I was going to do it. This is the waiting game. Wait for me. And the way we can be most helpful to God when God tells us to wait is to Wait. wait. So then last week we talked about Judah. And Judah was a guy who was only three generations after Abraham. And he was a guy who didn't even know he was playing the waiting game. He was the fourth child. He didn't have any, like, he wasn't too concerned about receiving an inheritance from his father, but he was really concerned about what, where his inheritance would go. And he was kind of a, a self-centered kind of guy. And we saw last week his transformation. And what God did, starting with Judah, is he started to grow a nation. But the way he did that is he sent them into slavery for 400 years. So 400 years. All you've known, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, you're working for the Egyptians. And then God shows up again with a guy named Moses and says, hey, I'm going to take you out of here. We're going to go do something in a different land. I'm going to promise you I'm going to give you this land. So you've been a slave for 400 years. How long is 400 years? Well, who was president 400 years ago? We were in a country 400 years ago. So it's been a long time, and you've been a nation in slavery for a long time, and God shows up and says, hey, I'm going to take you out of here, and we're going to do something special. And can you imagine never really owning anything and only ever looking to your taskmasters for food and provision, and suddenly you're out walking in the desert, and God is literally raining food down from the sky to take care of you. And so they goes and they you get a bunch of slaves and they walk around and that goes about as well as you can imagine that it went And they wander around for 40 years, and they end up in a land. And they get different sections of land. They kind of divide up the house. They get different rooms. You get this room, and you get that room, and you get that room. And they go their separate ways, and they make a country. And they're all kind of a Confederate, I hate using that word, but they're a Confederate state in the sense that they don't have a centralized government. I mean, that in the sense that they don't have a centralized, there's one place that we go, and that's the capital city of the whole nation. It's like 12 separate states with no Washington, D.C., Right? So they're looking around and they're going, hey, everybody else, every other nation in the world has a king. We need a king. Like, things have not gone well for us. Like, re- let's ignore the fact that we never really worshiped God. We didn't ever really follow and did the things that he wanted us to do. And so we keep getting captive and, and, and things aren't going well. But I think the solution to this, rather than turning to God, is to come up with our own solution. We're going to make a king. And so they line everybody up and they find like the most kingly guy they can find and they make him king. His name is Saul. And things don't go well for Saul. He looked like a king. He looked strong. He was a big guy. He looked like a king, but his heart was wicked. He didn't know what to do. So that's a lot, a lot of history. It's actually like nine generations. And remember, a generation is 40 to 100 years. We're not going to narrow that down much more than that. There's been nine generations since we've talked about Judah, at least nine generations. Things have not gone well. The 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 nation is a little bit in turmoil. They got this king, but still they're under attack from the Philistines. There's a, a, a foreign army that's taking over them and constantly fighting and things. They just never have any peace. It doesn't matter what they do, they're never at peace. And that's a little bit where our story is gonna pick up. We're gonna begin in first Samuel. First Samuel chapter sixteen. Um, and I had the page written down on my notes, which are not here presently, so I will turn there and tell you what it is. First Samuel chapter, chapter sixteen, if you're using a story, Bibles on page one hundred and ninety-four. And so in the, in the context of all of this, Saul, the king, the first king of Israel, kind of the George Washington of sorts who wasn't actually, like, honorable, he gets himself in trouble. God says, you're not going to be king anymore. So we're waiting for the revolution to happen. And in First Samuel, chapter 16, we meet a fellow named Samuel, and he's not a political figure so much. He's a spiritual figure. He goes around and he, he, he tells people, like, this is what God said and this is what y'all are doing. And you see how those things don't go very well together right now? Like, y'all need to change that. And that's his role. Everywhere he goes, he's giving people bad news. And so folks don't necessarily like him a whole lot. But we're going to be in First Samuel chapter 16. And I'm going to pray before we get rolling, reading. God, thanks so much for this morning. Lord, your story is so complex. There's so many details and things that are in it. And so, God, I just ask that you would give us clarity to zoom out and be able to see the big picture of what you were doing. That, Father, we'd not be distracted um, or get caught up in this morning, trip over the details of what was happening. But, Lord, that those details that we do step into would reveal the glory of the story that you are writing. Father, this is your morning, and this is your word, and so I pray that you would make it clear today. Would you unite us together in your spirit, and Father, would you change our hearts to be more like you today? It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in this backdrop of everything's going terribly and the king's messed up, we see 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, essentially not, it's like a flask, fill your flask with oil. um, And go, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet with him, and trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So here's what happens is God says, I'm not going to deal with Saul anymore. I'm done with him. So I want you to go anoint a new king. Mark somebody else that they're going to be the next king. It's not going to be Saul, and it's not going to be Saul's son. It's going to be somebody from outside of Saul's family. And Samuel is a smart guy. He says, God, if I do that, it's not going to make Saul happy. Like he's got stuff set up pretty well there in his little system. And if he hears that I'm going to start a quote unquote insurrection, he's going to kill me. And God says, well, you're going to go incognito. You're going to say that you're going to sacrifice. And you are going to offer a sacrifice. But your purpose is more than sacrifice. It is to anoint, to set apart somebody to be king for me. And I'll show you when you get there. God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? Like, God calls us to faith, and you're like, all right, where are we going? And God says, I'll show you when we get there. But, 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 but that's not helpful. Like, I like to put the final address in my GPS before I begin. And God says, no, 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 just get on the road. We're heading north. There's snow there, God. I'm not going. Like, I'm sorry. God just has a way of doing that sometimes, where he says, I'll show you when you've arrived. And there's times in our lives where we arrive somewhere, and God says, see, I told you. And you're like, oh, wait, this was where we were going. And he says, yeah, this was where we were going. Now we're going to go somewhere else. i like, well, where are we going now? I'm like, I'll show you when we get there. There's just a way that God works. Sidebar. <clears throat> when they came, in verse 6, when they came. So everybody gets together for this sacrifice. I don't know how much Jesse knows uh, about what's going on. He just knows that They live in a small town. Bethlehem, they don't, like, it's an agricultural society. There's nothing special about Bethlehem. So this really famous spiritual leader shows up and is like, hey, we're going to do a sacrifice. Like, okay. He's like, I want Jesse and his sons there. Like, all right. Yeah. So when they came, they looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, or Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ready. And he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So, uh, you're Jesse. You're from a small town. I don't know if you can imagine this. I mean, Ocala is kind of a bustling, a bustling metropolis here. But put yourself as if you grew up in a small town, and this big spiritual leader, the Billy Graham of your day, shows up and says, "Hey, we're going to do dinner. We're going to have a dinner, and we're going to sacrifice to God. We're going to have a little worship gathering together." Okay, okay. bring your sons. Like, oh, all right, all right. So, uh, how do you, how do you think through that, like? all right, fellas, I don't want you to just wash your hands. Like, you have to go take a real shower this time. You're talking to seven boys. Go take a real shower. You want yourself to get clean. We're going to wear our nice robes. Because this is, this is like Samuel here. Like, this is a big deal. And so I don't know what Samuel's up to, but he says, all right, I want to see all your boys. So you like, you show up, and, and the first son stands up, and he's a big guy. Like, he's strong, and he looks like he could be a king. Like, he's, he's a strong kid. He's the firstborn. He's you know, he's the one that Jesse's planning to pass his inheritance to. He's trustworthy, and Samuel and Samuel is thinking, "Oh yeah, this guy's the one." And God says, "Eh, no, no he's the next one?" So you get your second born and your third born, seven sons, little parade. And uh, Samuel says, "Yeah, you got some nice boys here. They, they clean up pretty good. You have any others?" Well, the youngest one. He's out taking care of the sheep. He says, Well, I'll go get him. So he's coming home from work. He didn't have time to take a shower. And he walks up, and, and, and God says very clearly to Samuel, That's the one that I want. That's the one that's going to be king. He's the unlikeliest one. He's maybe 10 years old, 10 to 15 years old. How old are you, Max? How old are you, Stephen? All right, how old are you, Brandon? 14, 14? okay. Front row, right here. King, the next king. I don't know what they knew specifically about what was happening because Samuel was trying to keep it a secret. But from a very young age, God could see what David was going to become. And he could see that the disposition of his heart was to search after God and to long to be him. So, where my exhortation to us oldsters is that Abraham was 75 when his quote unquote spiritual career started. Realize that you guys can start today. That what God wants to do in your life is not determined by what age you are presently, it is what God has set you apart to do. You're neither too young nor too old. Because from this day forward, the whole trajectory of David's life changed because God was with him from here on out to do the work that he wanted to do. And so church, like, this is a a challenge to us. When we do Kid Nation, this isn't just like a nice thing that we do to kind of placate, you know, the children and have a little bit of children's time. No, like, God wants to do work in their lives. We cannot look down on children and think that, well, they don't do enough spiritual stuff Like, we're just trying to do some daycare in the back. Like, no, that ministry is happening back there. God is doing work in kidnation. And God is doing work here, regardless of what age we are. Go get him from the sheep, he's going to be the next king. So maybe you've heard a little bit about David's life and you know a couple of the things that happen next. See, David isn't much older when he gets an invitation randomly to come and, and, and be a, a musician. Did I get the right picture? Yeah, to be a musician for the king. See, the king had uh, some depression, um, a little bit of manic depressive. I don't know how you would diagnose it, but he has some problems. And so they hired a musician to come in and play for him to calm things out. And so David randomly, you know, not like God's in charge of any of this, but randomly this little kid out of Bethlehem, small town nowhere, is really good at the harp, and he gets word and the king hires him. So he's now living in a palace playing guitar for the king. And as he's doing that, he makes friends with the king's son. And they're like best friends. And so life seems to be going pretty well. And then randomly one day, he's out trying to help his brothers because his brothers have grown up and they've gone to the army. And the army is out at war because things are not necessarily going well for Saul and for his military campaigns. So David goes to take some supplies to his brothers. And by the way, kills a giant while he's there. I don't know if you've ever heard that story. Oops. The king is cowering in the tent saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the 15-year-old walks in and says, well, you go kill the giant. He's making fun of God. Why would you let him make fun of God like that? God is greater than this Philistine. And the king tries to give him his own armor. Like I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to wrap my head around Saul's mindset here. And David walks out with a rock and God kills him. Maybe God will be with me. And so he makes friends with the king's son, Jonathan, and Jonathan is supposed to be the king next, but they're like best friends. They're super, super close. And as, I'm going to keep looking at these notes as long as they're up. I need to move these ones over here. I apologize. There we go. He comes best friends with the king's son, and Now he's accidentally had this military victory where things are not going well for Saul, and so he's in Saul's chambers playing guitar for him, and at least twice, Saul just gets so angry when he sees David playing these songs that he throws a spear at him tries to kill him. Like, we may not have the best boss in the world, but, like, most of us don't have the experience of them trying to, like, shoot us during the day. Like, I'm just doing my job here, boss. I'm just trying to calm things down. And so two times he's throwing spears at David just while he's trying to do his work. And all the people have heard about what happened with David and Goliath, and they start making up a song. They say, David has killed, or excuse me, Saul has killed thousands, and David's killed ten thousands. He's a kid. He's 15, 16 years old. And the king is supposed to be the king. He was strong. That's why we picked him. That's what we wanted. And so the king tries to murder him twice. And when he shows that he's got some military prowess, he keeps trying. the king sends him and his army into battles that he knows are doomed to fail. He sends David into battle knowing that all of the odds are stacked against him and he's not coming back from this. And he does. And then he has this plot that he's going to murder and assassinate David and Jonathan protects him. The heir to the throne protects the usurper against the king who's trying to protect the heir to the throne. There's another secret assassination attempt. There's four open attempts to have David arrested and people are like, we're not arresting him. The king who is high and mighty and thinking like, just arrest that guy. Every time he goes to arrest him, people are like, "Eh, no, he's good. So David gets sent into exile like, Jonathan says, hey, it's not good for you to be around the house. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let you get you get you know. Like, he's in a bad mood today. You need to leave. And so David leaves. And he goes into exile, and he's in a different country. And Saul chases him. And this is, if, the Bible is so funny. Like, there's so much humor in the Bible. There is a, a story. There is a point at which David and his army are fleeing the army of Saul. And David's on one side of the mountain, and Saul's on the other side of the mountain. And they just do this. They go back, they're circling around him. like Literally, Saul is chasing his tail, trying to get a hold of David, and David doesn't want anything to do with it. It's David and Jonathan, best friend. They're, they're cool, they hang out. So there's a couple of moments where Saul finds himself in a cave. A cavern, Yeah. And so Saul is taking care of business in a cave. He just happens to be taking care of business in a cave that David's in the back of. And David's running from this man. This man is literally trying to kill him. There is a warrant out for his death. And David's in the back of the cave, and Saul's taking care of business. Like, that's a euphemism. He's going to the bathroom. And David walks up to him, and he cuts off his cloak, cuts off the corner of his cloak, and he gets back in the back. Like, he's a super sneaky spy now. And as Saul leaves, like, (laughs) the Spirit of God moves with him in compassion. (laughs) And he's upset that he's hurt the king's clothing. He calls out to Saul. He says, I'm really sorry. I just cut off the hem of your cloak. Like, that was not a good thing for me to do. And Saul, like, you what? Like, you had a knife that close to me while I was most vulnerable? And you're apologizing for just cutting my cloak? Like, we're good, man. <laughs> that happens not once, but twice, where Saul is completely vulnerable and in front of David, and David refuses to kill him because he knows that Saul is the king for now. And David is content to wait for what God is going to do. How long, like for you guys, what's the thing that you've ever waited the longest for? Christmas? So you wait for a year, right? We're going to get done in a couple of days. We have Christmas. And you have to wait a whole another year. Like your birthday? We wait for those kind of things? Like, like imagine, uh, what, what's the big thing on your list this year? What do you want? Clothes? New shoes. New shoes? No Xboxes or anything? Are we good with that? You've got one? OK, what's that? I got a Fitbit. A Fitbit? Three this year, OK, cool deal. So, like, imagine that you knew. Imagine that God came and promised you, like, you're going to get the one thing that you want for Christmas this year. But it's going to take 15 years. Like, you're definitely going to get it, but you're going to have to wait 15 years. And not only are you going to have to wait 15 years for it, I'm going to literally put the box in your hands with it wrapped, but you're not allowed to open it yet. You're going to open it. Like, this is, this is David's mindset. Like, what God has promised to him, God literally puts in his hand and says, it's not quite time yet, but look, it's right here. I have it for you. And David says, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for you to do what it is that you are going to do, God. So he goes into exile again. He runs away. He's in enemy territory. And he somehow makes it work in enemy territory. So where he's 15 or 16 years old when he slays Goliath and all of these things started, he's 30 years old when Saul is killed in battle. 15 years, twice your age, he waited for God to do what God said he was going to do in his life. Like, we can kind of get our minds around Abraham being, like, he's an older guy. He's seen how the world works. But I can't imagine a teenager waiting 15 minutes for anything, much less starting a 15-year waiting game. And yet he does. And when he hears that Saul has been killed in battle, when he hears that Jonathan has been killed in battle, he weeps. He's upset. He tears his clothes. He writes songs about how great they were because he knew that God had chosen them for that time, and he knew that it wasn't his time yet. So at 30 years old, he's made king of the tribe of Judah. Y'all have heard of Judah, right? Judah was the biggest tribe at the time. And then there's kind of a civil war thing going on where the rest of the tribes aren't really quite sure whether they want to do that, and there's a whole lot of backstory um, cloak and dagger stuff, like the Bible is fascinating <laughs> to see how things play out. But ultimately, he becomes king at 30 years old, and then at 37 years old, he's king of the whole nation. The, the nation unifies. They say, yep, David, we want you to be king. So almost 20 years he waits for what God promised to do with him when he was 10, 12 years old. Then I want to show you in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're actually going to read the whole thing. I I went back and forth as to whether we needed to read the whole thing, but I want to read the whole thing. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is on page 210 in the Story Bible. From the time that David was anointed to be king to the time that he was made king, God was with him. And Samuel, we talked about Samuel. Samuel's kind of passed away at this point, and there's a new prophet in town. There's a new spiritual leader in the country. His name is Nathan, I just, just so that you're aware. In Second Samuel chapter 7, Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David has now seen military victory that has never been seen before in a tribe or nation of people that was built off of slaves. Like, they were never very good at fighting. And now David has come up and they've had military victory and have conquered almost all the land that they needed to conquer And David says, look, I've built a palace. I've set aside a place for my capital city, and I'm living in a house of cedar, and yet God is still traveling around in a tent. The presence of God is on the Ark of the Covenant in a special way. He says, God's still in a tent. I want to build a house for God. And Nathan, the spiritual leader, says, sure, yeah. That seems like a good idea. Do it, David. Verse 4, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I'm going to pause there. So David says to Nathan, I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, yeah, it seems like a good idea. You're a good guy. That could work. That very night, Nathan gets a dream, and God says, through Nathan to David, did I ask you to build me a house? I've been in the tent since we started this whole thing. When I brought the people of Israel out, like, I asked them to build me a tent. I gave them very specific instructions about how to build the tent. They built me a tent. That's what I'm going to be in. But I see your heart. I see that you acknowledge that every good gift has come from me, I have taken you out of the pasture where you were raising literal sheep and I have made you a shepherd over the nation. I've taken you out of the pasture and I've put you in a palace. I did this for you. And now, beyond that, I'm going to make a great name for you. See, David comes, like I said, the kids. David comes, he says, I want to build you a house. I want to make this really pretty church building where we can all gather together and worship you, God, and your presence can rest and be at rest and not have to move around in this tabernacle. I want to set aside a place for you. And God says, great, I I love where you're at. That's not what's going to happen, but I'm going to build you a house Like, you want to build me a building, I'm going to build you a household. I'm going to build you a family. I'm going to make your name great. Where you were just a shepherd and the youngest son out of a whole slew of kids. I'm going to make something lasting for you. Verse 10, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that, declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God says, I'm going to set aside a special place for Israel. I'm going to give them rest. This wandering nation, these people who have always just lived in tents, I'm going to give them a home with a foundation and a place to dwell. There's a change in mindset that happens when you go from being a renter, somebody who's constantly moving or having to wait and renew your lease the next year, and the anxiety that goes with that to just being like, this is my house. And that's what God's saying I want to do. I want to take these slaves and these people who have wandered, and I want to set them up, and I want to give them peace. I want to plant them. I want to plant them and let them grow in security. And David, I'm going to use you to do that. And I'm going to make a household for you a family that's eternal. It says, you'll live before me forever. It's crazy. God hasn't talked like this since Abraham to a specific individual. He talked to Israel and through Moses about it. There's a whole nation. But this is the first time he's talked with an individual like this in a long time. Generations. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. I just, Do you, get the, you see that picture? Like, you get this news, Nathan comes in in the morning, you're sipping your coffee, and Nathan says, hey, I had a dream last night, you're going to want to hear this. And so Nathan tells him the dream, and he just goes to the, the temple, I'm assuming he goes to the tabernacle, and just... Do you ever just sit with God, trying to figure out what it is that he's doing? All of the things that have happened in your life are leading to what God wants to do in your life coming up next. And, And so David hears this word, that this great promise is coming, and David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? everything you've done. What, what did we have? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house and for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all we have heard with our ears." And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out from before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you have established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. God brings out greatness from our weakness. David says, what was my family? We lived in Bethlehem. Nothing happens in Bethlehem. It's a small town. Literally means house of bread. We grow grain. That's what we do. I was out taking care of the sheep. That's not exactly an impressive resume. And yet you took me from being a sheep in the pasture or being a leader of sheep in the pasture to being a leader of men in a palace. And that wasn't enough for you, God. Now you're making an eternal, a long lasting covenant with my family. Like, we don't deserve this. You are great, God. And God brings out greatness from our weakness. But I want there to be a little bit of a caveat God brings out greatness from our weakness, but that doesn't necessarily mean that He brings out greatness from us. And it is not our greatness that He brings out. David says, Oh, Lord God, you are God above all things. You are great, and you have done great things. The greatness that God brings out from our weakness is his greatness. The things that he chooses to do in our lives are things that he is doing in our lives. We contribute not a lot. You see, David... Small town, not educated, you know, what did he have? And yet God did this amazing thing in his life. And it took a long time, but God did this amazing thing in his life. And he gets to this climax of his life. Everything has gone perfectly for him up until this point. And he says, God, like, you're blowing my mind here. He just sits with the Lord. Thank you, God. Only you have done this work. And I'll just say as a caveat that this is the highlight of David's life. And at the point where God shows up and does something miraculous and stupendous and of eternal value, the enemy immediately comes and deceives him and pulls him away from what God had planned for him. The rest of his life doesn't stay on this super up trajectory. But at this point, he realizes that God brings out greatness from our weakness. So what do you consider your weaknesses? Are you young? Are you uneducated? Are you from a small town where nothing ever happens? Are you from a bad family, a family that wasn't helpful to you? What do you consider your weaknesses? Will you trust God to bring out his greatness in that weakness? And if that's not deep enough for you, if you need one more step down, what of your strengths, what do you consider a strength, and what of your strengths is limiting what God wants to do in your life? Where are you trusting what good things have been in your life more than you trust what God would want to do with them? When we have nothing, we're actually at a great advantage when we have something, we're in danger of trusting in ourselves or in our stuff to take God's place. But God brings out his greatness from our weakness. Let's pray again for listening we hope you've been challenged encouraged and helped by God in his word if you want more information about Grace Church of Ocala or would like to get in contact with us please visit our home on the internet ocalagrace.org and if we haven't met yet we hope to talk with you soon